Welcome back to Catching Dad's Killer. We're back inside Robert Dickey's house, the man who went missing in 2016 and is believed now to be dead, possibly murdered. We're inside the house with crime scene detectives. It's August 2017. Over a year has passed since Bob went missing and the first checks of Bob's house were done. In this current search, 211 photographs were taken and submitted into evidence. As part of those photos, there's a large bloodshed event that happened in Bob's bedroom. Inside that bedroom, the CSI performs tests on both areas of staining underneath the carpet. They were positive for the presence of human blood. The CSI also took samples of the lighter coloured and stained carpet and samples of the unstained carpet as well for later analysis. On the eastern wall of the bedroom, I located three areas of blood staining which I identified with labels. The stains were somewhat concealed behind the pedestal fan and mirror in the northeastern corner of the room. There were not less than five visible stains that were elliptical shaped spatter stains. The investigator performed tests on the staining of the mattress, the bed frame and the slats, which were all positive for the presence of human blood. Um, there was more blood staining behind the bedhead. It was human blood as well as more on the northern wall. Some were blood staining and some were blood spatter or cast off. An expert explained the difference in the trial. Cast off is a forensic term used to describe droplets of blood which strike objects such as items of furniture or walls if they are in a dwelling which has been flung off another object such as a weapon. The CSI also found white marks on some of the walls He told the court what he thought these could be in his experience. There was an alteration to the appearance of that portion of the wall, which may be indicative of the application of something else, such as a chemical like a bleaching agent or a cleaning agent. Uh, There are a number of scenarios that may have occurred in relation to a wipe and a deposit of blood. If the wipe was not using some cleaning product that was effective and was applied sometime after the deposition of the blood, so the blood has already had time to dry, there is the chance that the blood remained on the wall after that wiping action. But there is also the possibility that the wiping of the wall occurred some other time. I don't know when the wiping of the wall occurred. There was clearly a wipe mark. It may have occurred at some previous time and then the blood was deposited over the top of it. They tested the blood found against a toothbrush with Bob's DNA. It was a positive match for Bob. All of this blood was Bob's blood. The carpet that was noticeably lighter in Bob's bedroom was also tested. The senior forensic chemist compared two parts of the carpet from Bob's bedroom, the one that was lighter and the other that looked normal. Uh, The questioned piece of carpet was found to contain particles having a similar appearance and composition to particles found in some laundry powders. In addition, chloride and ammonium methylamine ions, which can be found in bleaching products, were indicated in the results of analysis. Uh, The pH of areas of the questioned piece of carpet showed a similar pH to areas of test pieces of carpet onto which a paste of laundry powder samples and liquid bleach was applied. Given the above, it is my opinion that the questioned carpet sample contains particles like those found in some laundry powders and residues of other chemicals that could have originated from bleaching products. They tested the empty Domestos bleach bottle for fingerprints. They couldn't develop any. They DNA tested two sets of Ansel gloves in the kitchen. It was the same DNA profile as Bob. 
The nail brushes that were seized in the laundry were also tested. They were negative for blood. However, further testing found light-coloured fibres knotted amongst the bristles of both nail brushes. The expert testified that the fibres from the mop bucket did not come from the carpet and that the fibres recovered from the red nail brushes were similar to fibres from the carpet samples taken from the main bedroom. The findings provide very strong support for the proposition that the red nail brushes had significant contact with the bedroom carpet. A crucial part of the evidence was trying to establish when the blood stains and the apparent cleaning of the carpet had happened. Was it before Bob went missing or was it in the year and a bit between the first walkthrough and the more thorough walkthrough in August of 2017? In June of 2017, a police officer took photos inside Bob's house. There were also photos taken by the CSI in August of that same year. Comparing the photos, they found that the similar light-coloured carpet appeared in both photos. There was also another photo that was important. Back in 2012, when police were investigating the allegation that came from the woman that said Bob sexually assaulted her, police took photos of Bob's bedroom. Those photos showed no light-coloured carpet. So, it seemed clear that the cleaning of the carpet happened sometime between 2012 and the day after Bob went missing in 2016. A forensic pathologist who had practiced since 1994 said the evidence suggested that the blood shedding event that caused the blood stains under the carpet occurred between the 24th of April 2012 and the 19th of June 2016. And this is where things get complicated. Remember, in a murder case, it's up to the prosecution, and in this case the Crown, to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the accused murdered Bob. It's not the defence's job to prove her not guilty. It all rests on the prosecution. The defence called experts to talk about the amount of blood found and question whether it was a substantial bloodshed event and if the lighter carpet was actually cleaned or it was something else. As to the cause of some of the lighter areas of staining on the carpet, the defence called an expert to say that it could have been caused by fluids added to the carpet as part of a cleaning process, which may change the nature of any staining by dilution of the blood. As to the possibility of blood located in the main bedroom being from a nosebleed or bleeding gastric ulcer, a doctor for the Crown said. There may be explanations for quantities of blood on the carpet, but blood was found elsewhere and in particular on the walls in a variety of locations. And my view is that a nosebleed, even a large nosebleed, does not explain particularly the blood droplets on walls. And further, a bleeding gastric ulcer might explain blood on the carpet if somebody vomits blood. But again, it doesn't explain the blood on those walls or, in fact, elsewhere about the room. In cross-examination, that doctor elaborated that if a person with a nosebleed got blood on their fingers, then hypothetically it could have been flicked onto walls. The doctor also considered that the blood splatter on the walls could not be explained by Bob sneezing with a blood nose. The defence also questioned the prosecution's opinion that the blood shedding event was significant. The materials supplied do not explain or describe what the investigator specifically means when he uses the term significant. 
Is it the volume of blood seen, the distribution of the blood seen, the believed final result? Ergo, the postulated death of Mr. Dickey from blood loss or combinations of some or all of the above. The material supplied contains no information on whether and or how the investigator considered or incorporated the altered nature of the bloodstains in his determination of significance. Intuitively, the brushing of the stain would likely have a horizontal and vertical physical force component potentially enlarging the visible surface area of the blood staining and forcing the blood deeper into the carpet fibres. The addition of a second fluid would have a dilution effect on the blood staining, potentially enlarging the visible surface area of the blood staining when viewed from the carpet underside and changing the wicking behaviour of the now combined or unknown fluid mixture. They calculated that a person weighing 75 kilos who has a normal level of fitness and cardiovascular health could lose between 675 and 900 mils of blood with their vital signs such as the heart rate and blood pressure remaining within normal limits. And unless they had a coexisting medical condition, they wouldn't need things like extra fluid to keep them alive. The experts said that for death to occur from a rapid loss of blood, you needed to lose 40% of the total blood volume. Assuming that Bob weighed about 75 kilos, Bob would have had to rapidly lose in excess of two litres of blood. Questions were asked if Bob had any other health issues that might provide an explanation from him losing sufficient blood to cause the stains under the carpet. It was found that he seemed fine in the CCTV from the Dubbo Airport and Shopping Centre days before he went missing. He seemed to be walking fine with no discomfort or difficulty. Others came forward to talk about Bob's health. They told the story of Bob getting shot in 1994. And after that, Bob became very pedantic about his health. Annette, Bob's sister, told us about the circumstances of that shooting in 1994. Um, That was when he was living at Lays Creek with his second wife, Ellen, and her daughter. He was coming home from work in the morning as Ellen was leaving there and taking Karen to school. So they usually passed each other on the way. That is what happened. Ellen left home. She went past the car that was broken down, which was these fellows, um, and she continued on her way. Um, When Robert came home, he noticed that the front gate was done up funny. So he snuck in to the property. He saw their car there. I mean, he did, did all these things that I wouldn't even think to do. He let the tyres out down on the car that was there, continued on towards the house. Then he saw a fellow hide behind a tree with a gun. So he took off and the back of his, his property was like two levels and at the back there was a sort of a, a ridge going up to the back. He took off up there. Well, they shot at him. The, 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 the bullet went through the back window and the back seat and lodged into his shoulder. He, took, he, he kept going and went up the back of the, his property because he had a, quite a few acres there. There was another property up, up the back. Um, he went to, that, to those owners and they phoned the police and the, the helicopters came and police came. And, but they were three escaped prisoners. They had broken into 
a police officer's house in Maji, I think, or Galgong, and stolen the guns. And the reason they were at Roberts was because their car had broken down. Yeah, but they were just lucky that Ellen and Karen had already left because heaven knows what would have happened. Drive up a track to the rear of my property when they uh, started firing. They fired through the through the window of my ute and uh, one shot dropped me in the, uh, in the shoulder. Shot when he disturbed a group of teens ransacking his farmhouse near Mudgee. Well, the next one might have been in the back of my head, so I just kept driving. In about 2007 or 2008, Bob was diagnosed with Q fever, which was a condition contracted from livestock. He was put in hospital for that condition. Damien said that his dad was in pretty good health for an old fella and that he'd never reported having a cut or bleed in the bedroom. Darren, his other son, said his dad didn't mention any health issues in the months before his disappearance. Some of Bob's love interests also said that he was in good health. Some questions were raised about how much Bob drank, but from the evidence, it was found that he would have had a few bourbons a day and a few people noted that they'd never really seen him drunk. Medical records for Bob showed a raised liver function, which defence experts said might have been caused from excessive consumption of alcohol, and a bullet removed from Bob's left shoulder, or the Q fever, which can affect the lungs and liver. The defence and prosecution argued this point for a while. Could Bob have lost significant amounts of blood due to a liver issue? A professor noted that liver disease, particularly when advanced, can result in internal bleeding, including from the esophagus. I am unable to exclude the possibility that the blood on the carpet and on other surfaces in this case was the result of vomiting and exportation of blood from lesions in the upper gastrointestinal tract associated with liver disease. The prosecution's expert, of course, disagreed. If you had also been given a history of significant long-term alcohol consumption by Mr. Dickey, would you accept that bleeding of the type described by the doctor could not be excluded? I think it's unlikely. The amount of alcohol that Mr. Dickey appeared to drink at best was around, I saw a notation of five to six bourbons a day that would be classified as moderate drinking, but I don't think that at that level that as a consequence of daily drinking five to six bourbons a day, ferrosis of the liver with its attendant complications, particularly bleeding from the esophagus, would be expected. A defence expert noted that according to medical records back from May 2007, that Bob had provided a history for that period of 20 to 30 years. He'd been drinking the equivalent of five to seven standard drinks a day. The professor stated that such a level of drinking alcohol creates... A high risk of developing various complications associated with alcohol, specifically when it comes to liver disease. One of the main points of contention between the Defence and the Crown was how much blood caused this bloodshed event, and in particular when it happened. There was a delay to the original trial in Dubbo. It was because the Justice wanted more information about some other circumstances outside of the accused Kylie So and the Crown's version of events. You heard in episode one that Damien's son Dylan went missing just nine days after Bob. The question was asked in court if these two things could have been related. A detective gave evidence that on the 27th of June 2016, Damien Dickey's son, who was then aged 23, Dylan, was reported to police as missing. Pretty much one of my mates or an old mate contacted me and said um, 
that Dylan's motorbike had been found out the bush. And um, he said, I'll come pick you up and we'll meet you, like, we'll take you out there. And apparently, I didn't know, but the police were already out there. They'd set up a command centre. Yeah, when we got there, there was a few coppers there and um, I spoke to them. I was, I was sort of, I was pretty upset because I sort of, same, I sort of knew it wasn't going to be good. And um, yeah, they spoke to me. Um, they asked me what I thought, and I told them I thought that maybe Dylan had done it himself. So I showed him the message on my phone. Um, pretty much, he spoke about like, my dad saying how bad it was that Dad's missing, and um, you know he said he loved me and all this stuff, and he just said, um, "Prepare yourself for the worst tomorrow because it's not going to end good for you." Yeah, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad tomorrow. And um, that was on the 22nd of June, I know that was. And then the 23rd, he's never been seen again from. So that's, yeah. I knew what it, I knew, it's, it was a lot longer than that. But um, pretty much he was saying, like, prepare yourself for, and like he said, he goes, I know it's bad if your dad go missing, but he's saying just tomorrow's going to be even worse for you. On the 3rd of July, 2016, Dylan's motorbike was located in bushland, in a forest. Yeah, they found his bike, or other people from the public found his bike. Sort of bit off a track, just out in the open. Stood up or laid yeah, down? Yeah, stood up. Stood up. Yeah, just standing there. And then they found his helmet as well, his helmet and gloves. So I found probably maybe 500 metres or so from his bike, sort of heading down the mountain sort of thing towards all cliffs and real rocky area and stuff like that. Um, I found his helmet and gloves just sitting on a rock. Police searched the area and failed to locate him. Police said that inquiries by them failed to establish any link between the disappearance of Bob and Dylan, Damien's son. In his evidence, Damien said that for a time in the first half of 2016, his son was struggling with drug abuse and living with his mum. There was a discussion at the time about his son possibly staying with Bob on his property, but it didn't happen because both Bob and Dylan were both dead against it. Then there were police records of Bob's phone calls outside of his calls to Kylie in and around the days Kylie said he was picked up by a male and went to a party. On Tuesday the 14th of June at 10.35am, Bob received a call from a phone number ending in the number 058. It lasted 17 seconds. The calling number was connected to the Bunnyong cell tower in Dubbo and Bob's phone was connecting to Along Along's tower. At 10.47, Bob's phone called that same number in a call that lasted 2 minutes and 17 seconds. Each phone was connecting to the same towers as the earlier calls. Bob called the number again at 2.01pm that afternoon in a call that lasted 8 seconds. Police tracked down the phone number ending in 058 and found it was registered to someone we'll call Kelly, who gave evidence. She said she didn't know Bob and didn't recognise him via a photo the police showed her. She told the court that police interviewed her on the 16th of August 2016 and she told them that she'd purchased the mobile phone on or about the 8th or 9th of June for $70. 
she agreed that she told police she made a call on the phone on the 8th of June at 8.17 and at that time she was in the house in Dubbo where her then boyfriend lived. In her evidence, Kelly gave a different account, saying that her boyfriend purchased the phone. She was not with him when he did so. When she went back to his house, he asked her to activate it for him because he had no ID. She activated it while she was in his house. Kelly agreed that on the afternoon of the 8th of June 2016, she rang her father to arrange a lift somewhere. She was asked what happened to the phone and replied, I believe it was stolen. There were many other people in the house. Someone's taken the phone. She didn't recall who else was in the house at the time other than her boyfriend at the time. Because there was traffic in the house, there were other people, like he was in and out. His friends, kids coming in and out, people coming in and out. She said that she'd left the phone on the table and walked out. I just wanted to get out of there. She said she only used the phone once. Kelly's boyfriend at the time gave evidence. He said he'd never met Bob. But when he saw an image of him on the news, he recalled that he'd seen him probably a few weeks before playing poker machines at the Macquarie Inn. I see him with girls, but I don't know the girls. The boyfriend said that around the time that Kelly went with her dad, he took the phone off her. He would ask either Kelly or his son to activate his phones. He was asked in court, why would you do that? Why would you get them to activate a phone that you were going to use? You accept that people involved in criminal activity like to use phones that are not in their own name. You agree? Yeah. Did you get Kelly or your son to activate a phone in their name so you could give it to someone else? Yeah, I don't know about that. It's just that I never activated them before, so I just needed someone to help me activate it. That'd be the only reason I'd do it. You say you got this phone off Kelly shortly after she activated it? Probably Kelly, but... um... The phone was used to call Mr Dickey's number about six days after it was activated. You say you have no idea who would have used that phone to call Mr Dickey. Is that your evidence? No, I didn't know, no. Did you have any knowledge of Kelly knowing Mr. Dickey? I I don't have any knowledge of them knowing each other. Kelly said that she gave the phone to you? Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't recall. Who bought the phone? Could it have been you who bought it? Yeah, I could have bought it and sold it, yeah, but it's so long ago. I don't really remember. Yeah, I can't remember around that time. The boyfriend said he kept the phone for a bit. I would have kept it, but yeah. I would have, yeah, but I haven't got it now. He said that at the time, he and Kelly would go through phones quickly. The boyfriend was asked if he phoned Bob in June of 2016, and he replied, no, no, I didn't know him, so no. He said that he did not know who had used the phone that police asked him about, that he got from Kelly to call Bob. There was other evidence outside of the evidence that involved Kylie So. Police got information from a man we'll call Troy. He told police that a man named Peter, with two other men, had killed Bob. Police also received information from Eva that she heard Peter express an intention to Tracy to kill Bob Dickey. Both sources gave evidence of hearsay statements. Neither allegation was corroborated and both were contradicted by Peter, who gave evidence. The fellow that said he went to Robert's property, 
knocked on the door, shot Robert in the head. I mean, that just wasn't true. Why, why would people say stuff that just isn't true? And the, he said, the fellow he said was with him wasn't even in Dubbo at the time, he was in Warren. And, he, and the fellow that was in Warren didn't even remember he was in Warren. I mean, that's how bizarre all these drug people and everything that just didn't remember anything. Police looked into Peter's moments in the days leading up to Bob's disappearance. On the 12th of March 2016, Peter was stopped for a random breath test in Dubbo. Tracy was in the vehicle with him. She was the woman that left the syringe at Bob's house the police were able to identify. Peter was also using ice in mid-2016. On June 10, 2016, Peter and two other people broke into a supermarket in Dunedoo which is about 90 k's away from Dubbo. Police also got extracts from Peter's bank account for the period in June. Peter had no money in his accounts from June 1 to June 21. He tried to take out sums of money on the 11th of June for $300. Over the next few days, he kept trying 13 times. However, each time the ATM rejected the transaction. On the 21st of June, 2016, Peter's account was credited with a payment of $536 from Centrelink. On that day, at 12.31 a.m., he withdrew the sum of $300. Peter was pulled over shortly afterwards by police in Dubbo. He told police he was intending to go to the bank. Diana, the woman that had been involved with Bob, was in the car with Peter that night. On June 28, 2016, Peter was interviewed by police in relation to the Dunny Doo break-in. Police formed a view that Peter was under the influence of ice at the time of the interview. He was charged, convicted, and received a sentence of imprisonment for that offence. In the next episode of Catching Dad's Killer. On the charge that between the 14th day of June 2016 and the 15th day of June 2016, at Elong Along, in the state of New South Wales, you did murder Robert Dickey. I find you.